Good morning. It's good to see everybody. It has been a fantastic week, and I'm sure that uh, we're probably all a little bit tired from uh, all of the busy and interaction and staying out late, things like that, but it's been a, good, a great week of spending time together and of focusing our minds on God, and uh, I'm about spent. I may, my voice may crack several times this morning. The kids can laugh. I don't care. Uh, <clears throat> but just bear with me. I may need to have to, I may have to stop and get a drink uh, a couple times, so hope you'll be patient with me. We're going to talk this morning about temperance, and uh, I preached on this here probably about four and a half years ago, and that's probably so long you probably don't remember a whole lot of it. This one? This one's not working. Got to turn it on. How about now? Okay. Uh, so I preached on this about four and a half years ago, and so you probably don't remember a lot of the details of this lesson. We've talked about temperance quite a bit, but temperance is a fundamental of Christianity. It's mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes and he says, you need to add these things to your faith, and temperance is mentioned there as something that we're to add to ourself so that we don't fall, so that it makes us... Uh, bear fruit in the kingdom of God. It's also mentioned as being a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22. Temperance is a very important thing. It's an identifying characteristic of Christianity. If you don't have temperance in your life and you call yourself a Christian, the world will look at you and say, you're not a Christian. And they're right. Because if we don't have temperance in our life, we are not like Christ. He exemplified self Control, And that's what the word temperance means. It means self-control. Thayers gets a little bit wordy with it where he says, It is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. I want to think about mastering something. You know, there are people who are called jack of all trades. There are people who are called master of trades. And if you think about someone who is a master at something, how did they get there? Because the truth is, none of us are going to just wake up one day and master our desires and passions. And everybody has desires and passions. You've got something in your life that you have a temptation, you have a tendency toward, whether that's that you're hot-tempered or, or maybe you're loose-lipped, or I don't know what it is, but we all have something, uh, we have a tendency attached to our flesh and the question is, how does someone master those things? And what is the idea of mastering something? Well, it's just like the word says, master. What's a master? A master has what? Control. And you talk about a master carpenter. Why do they call them a master carpenter? Because they have mastered carpentry. They know exactly how it works and they can go in and with their skill and their understanding, they can do masterful work. They have complete and total control over their trade. Think about being a master of the flesh. You control you. That's the idea of self-control. You control you. So I want to use Paul's words this morning that Dusty read for us. And there's just three sections of this that I primarily want to focus on. It's not a very long reading, but there's really a lot in this reading. And Paul brings out some things 
that I think he's not really trying to teach us a concept here, but rather use a concept that we all understand in order to teach us something greater. We all understand about competition. And so he brings up competition. And right now we've got the Olympics going on. You see these Olympic athletes, and some of them spend their entire lives training to master whatever it is that they're competing in so that they can actually compete. You don't see people get off the couch and go to the Olympics and win a gold medal. There's a method. There's a way. There's a course of life that they have to stay with and stay focused in in order to master whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. And so Paul says this, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we, an imperishable crown. That gold medal, that's their goal. But that's not our goal. Our goal is the crown, the prize that Jesus will give us, that Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he said, I know, I know that I will receive a crown from the righteous judge and not only me, but to all those who love his appearing. I will have a crown. But Paul knew he was competing for that crown. And don't misunderstand what he's saying. We're not competing against each other. He's just talking about competition. Because competition is different from just running. Now there's some people who just run. But they're not competing. I was one of those p- people when, in high school. I was forced to run cross country. I didn't want to compete in cross country, so I didn't. I came in, you know, 10th from last or whatever it was. But I was forced to do that in order to play basketball. But there were people that were competing, and every time that they went to practice, they would run hard and they would be focused and they would try to focus on their breathing and their technique and their stride and their posture and all those things because they wanted to compete. And the question is, are we trying to compete or are we just running? Paul said, if you're going to win... You've got to compete, and if you're going to compete, you've got to be temperate in all things. In all things. I want to think about that. Be temperate in all things. So Paul says, therefore I run thus. That means, therefore I run in this way. Not with uncertainty. Thus I fight. Not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He says, I run this way, I fight this way. In what way? Well, he says, I don't run with uncertainty and I don't beat the air. So let's just stop and focus in on those two things for just a moment. What does it mean to run with uncertainty? I think it means to not know what race you're running or not know where you're going, not know the prize that you're headed toward. He says, I know the race that I'm in. I understand the race that I'm in. I know how to run it, and I know where I'm going. And he said, I don't fight like someone who beats the air. And maybe I've mentioned this before, but I remember years ago, we got really excited uh, when Bernard Hopkins, he, he was in prison. This guy was a masterful boxer, and he went to jail, and he got out. And he was supposed to go fight, and I think it was Jason Taylor. And these two guys were top boxers. And so we bought the pay-per-view, and we're excited, and we watched the fight. And I think Monty Paul was there, and Jason was there. It's the same night we studied with the Mormons, if you all remember that. This fight was terrible. (laughs) 
It was awful. These guys sat there and shadow boxed the whole time. And if you don't know what shadow boxing is, it means they didn't hit each other. They beat the air. They just punched the air. And we're like, this is not a fight. Well, why is it not a fight? Because you're supposed to be hitting your opponent. And Paul says, I'm not a person who's fighting, beating the air, because that's useless. You're not winning the battle if all you're doing is punching the air. You may look like you know how to fight, but, he, but you're not winning. And you're certainly not in the fight. You're just running, and you're just swinging. And he says, I know what I'm fighting. I know the battle. I'm, I know the enemy, and I think sometimes we don't know the enemy. Who's the enemy? We say, well, it's Satan. Well, it is Satan. But I'll tell you what, saying the devil made me do it doesn't work. When we don't have self-control and we say, well, the devil made me do it, that's not true. Because I'm going to tell you something, the devil's really not our greatest enemy. All the devil can do is tempt us. The greatest enemy is self. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 5.17 about this battle. He said, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and these are opposite to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. He says, Here's the enemy. It's your flesh. That's the battle. Your spirit and your flesh. And you're fighting against your own passions, your own desires. You are fighting against the carnal nature that exists within you. You need to understand who the opponent is. It's the flesh. It's those desires that you have. It's you. You control you. You don't control Satan. That's a futile battle. You're just going to punch the air if you try to control the devil. We have all these little quirky sayings that we see all the time about, you know, the devil said you can't stand the storm. Well, I am the storm. No, you're not the storm. You're not the storm. Jesus defeated Satan. You need to be fighting against yourself. You need to recognize Satan's devices, but all they are is temptation. But you have to fight against you because you are the one that is going to decide whether or not you're going to be controlled or not. You're in a war. And Paul knew it. Peter knew it. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's not just a tendency. It's not just a weakness. That lust, that lust and desire that I have, it is warring against my soul. What does it mean, War. How do you know who wins the war? When the other side surrenders. I want you to think about that really hard. Your flesh is trying to make your spirit surrender. And give in and yield to temptation. And live and commit and practice sin. It's warring against the soul. And he says you need to abstain from these lusts that war against the soul. Notice Romans 7 and verse 15. Paul says here, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good, but then it is no more I that do it, but sin 
that dwelleth in me. Now, if you look at this like I do, sometimes it looks like this mental spider web, and it's hard to sort all this out. So what I want to do is highlight the things of the Spirit in blue and highlight the things of the flesh in red. Because what Paul is describing here is what it's like for a person to live under the law. But he's also describing something that is, that is very familiar to every one of us, and that is the battle that's raging. And here's what he says. He says, that which I do, I allow not. In other words, my behavior and the things that I practice, what I'm doing, I don't approve of those things. And he says, what I want to do in the blue, what I want to do, what I desire to do, he says, I don't do it. I see something that I'm supposed to do, and then I don't do it. Well, then he says, and then what I hate, that's what I do. If then I do that, which I would not, he says, I consent unto the law that it's good, but then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's just describing the carnal nature of man, and he says, the spirit is crying out, here's what you need to do, here's what you don't need to do, but he said, the, the flesh is warring against that. And so then I look at something and I go, I need to do that, and then I don't. And then, it, then my spirit says, don't do that, and then I do it. And you feel that same battle, don't you? And it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. And so what, what Paul does, though, is he identifies the battle, but he also gives us tools to use to war against that battle. He reminds us of where our warfare is. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, Paul says, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Let's think about that phrase first. Sometimes people will say, well, I know I should be self-controlled, but I can't. Because you don't understand my temptation. My temptation is too great. I cannot be controlled in this whatever area. And Paul says, that's not true. We, we all feel that way at times. We feel like our grief is just our grief. And our temptation is just our temptation. And, and it's like, I don't know if it gives us some kind of uh, suffering badge of honor or what it is. But, but I'll tell you this. There's no temptation that's ever come upon us that's not common. Other people struggle with it. Whether it's addiction, whether it's sexual lust, whether it's anger issues, or whether it's grief or trauma, whatever it is. It's common. And I'll tell you, one thing that does is it gives us, uh, it takes away our excuse. But secondly, it also gives us comfort. Because there's other people that understand what we're going through. And by the way, Jesus understands what we're going through in the realm of temptation. Because he was tempted like as we are. And yet he was self-controlled. He did not commit sin. And so there's nothing that we're going to face as far as temptation and desire that is uncommon. But he also says this, and this is the biggest part of the verse. But God is faithful. That's the biggest part of the verse. There's no temptation that's taken you, but God is faithful who will not. He didn't say might not. He said will not. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. There's never a time when I commit sin that I can look back on that and go, well, the temptation was just too much. It was just too much. I, just, I, I, I didn't have a choice. No, you do. Because he says God is faithful. He's never going to allow more temptation on you than you can bear. 
Now we've twisted this verse to say that God is not going to give us more than we can bear. That's not what the verse says. It's not about every area of life. It's about temptation to sin. It's about temptation. It's not about circumstance. It's not about tragedy. It's not about pain. It's about temptation to sin. God will not allow us, not give us, but allow us to be tempted above what we're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And I want you to notice that at the end of this verse, he does not say he will make a way of escape so that you won't have to bear it. He doesn't say have to bear it. He doesn't take away the bearing. We still have to bear it. He says what he does is make us able to bear what we have to bear. There's a way of escape. There's always a way of escape. Every single time that we're tempted to commit sin, that we're tempted to lose control, God gives us a way to escape. There's always a way. Solomon says this in Proverbs 25, 28, He that hath no rule over his spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Here's another one of those verses that gives us the idea of a master-slave relationship where he says a person rules over what? Their spirit. They have rule over their spirit, their inner man. We would call this the mental side of man or, or maybe even the emotional side of man. In that way, God expects us to control our emotions or at least the outburst of those emotions. Now, can we always control how we feel? No. Can we at times? Absolutely. There are times we can control how we feel because how we feel is sometimes a response to how we perceive a situation. And if we look at a situation and we perceive it a certain way, what happens? We have an emotional, natural emotional response. And so we have to sort that out and look at it logically and weigh through the evidence and make sure that how I'm feeling is really in accordance to the truth and not just my perception of how I'm feeling. That's a way to control our emotions. But you can't always control how you feel. But you can, also, you can always control how you respond to how you feel. That's the deal. Ephesians chapter 4:29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. I think sometimes and I'm talking not just about you, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about us that when we feel a certain way, the first thing we want to do is make sure our feelings are out. And then sometimes I let those feelings fly and I go, "Ooh." <laughs> Probably should have thought that through. Uh, wasn't probably the best thing to just say. We have to be careful about that. Because sometimes what we can say can hurt people. And notice what, what he defines corrupt communication as. It's not just cursing or insulting or slander. He says, what is good for necessary edification. So he says, I want you to speak things, words that build up. So what is corrupt communication? Things that don't build up, things that don't impart grace, things that we would say tear down or hurt people. And sometimes in our rage and in our, our emotions, we say things that hurt people, don't we? We say things that tear people down. We say words to people that will leave scars for years and years and they will never forget. And we have to be in control. 
Because he tells us that the mouth is connected to the heart. And that's where control starts. If you want to control self, you don't start with the mouth, you don't start with the hands. You have to look into the heart. Because it's the heart that determines the action. Notice Matthew chapter 15 and 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. And Jesus is having a discussion with these people about uh, their accusation. They came and accused his disciples and he said, Why do your disciples not eat with unwashing hands? Because they thought that defiled a man. And Jesus said, that's not what defiles a man. Eating with unwashing hands doesn't defile a man. He said what defiles a man is what comes out of his heart. It's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. You know why? Because it shows the heart. And then he mentions other things that come from the heart. He says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, or lying as we would say, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. If I've got a self-control problem, if I've got a mouth problem, I really don't have a mouth problem, do I? I've got a heart problem. And so I have to figure out what the heart problem is in order to control the mouth. And there are things that we have to do with our heart, and here's one that's huge. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon said this, Above all else, that is above all other things, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The word guard means to protect, to protect your heart. It's, it's the same idea as putting armor on. We sang that song this morning about putting our armor on. How do you guard the heart? Well, better question is, how is something going to get to your heart? How's it going to happen? The only two ways it's really going to happen. And it's through this and through this. That's it. That's how something gets in our heart. Through our eyes and our ears. Something's not going to get in our heart some other way. It's not, it's not as though, you know, some mystical force comes upon us and corrupts our heart. It's through what we see and what we hear and what we experience. And so what's he really saying here when he says, guard your heart? He's saying, you be mindful of what you see, what you consider, and what you listen to. You have to be mindful of those things. Why? Because they will corrupt the heart. Everything in your life flows from the heart, so you don't want it to be corrupt. Think of that like a river that people depend upon for their water source, and somebody goes up at the very source of the river, and they start pouring things in that are poison. What happens to the river? It becomes corrupt. The same is true of our life. When we begin to allow things into our heart that poison our heart, our life becomes corrupt because the source of our life becomes corrupt. We've got to be controlled. We've got to control what we do with our eyes. We've got to control what we do with our ears. Romans chapter 16 and 17. Paul says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those, that is, take note of those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple, 
concerning evil. Let's first look at verse 17 where he says, I urge you, brethren, take note of those who are causing divisions. And how are they causing divisions? That's the question. Because he wants us to avoid people that cause these type of divisions. But how are they doing it? Look at verse 18 again. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words. By smooth words. Why is he wanting us to take note of these people and avoid them? Because what they're saying is causing problems. What they're saying is causing divisions. You don't have, you don't have any obligation to listen to people who are saying divisive things things you don't have any obligation to do that you don't have any obligation to listen to someone as they spew out hatred and venom you have no obligation to do that in fact you've got a commandment from God to guard your heart and to avoid those those type of things and he says in verse 19 for your obedience has become known to all therefore I'm glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil I know we sometimes feel the obligation to be overly educated about everything in life but I you to take this verse to heart I want you to be wise in what's good and simple concerning evil what does he mean simple well let's back up who's deceived the hearts of the simple he means simple minded he wants us to be simple minded in regard to evil you say whoa whoa now let's think about what he's saying do I need to know about evil yes Do I need to know and be able to identify what's evil? Yes, in fact, there's biblical teaching about that. But here's what I don't need to know about. I don't need to fill my mind full of wickedness. I don't need to watch things that are extremely violent over and over and over and over. I don't need to watch things that are sexual over and over. I don't need to watch those at all. But when you do that, you watch them over and over and over and over and over. Guess what happens? It's burned into the heart. We don't have to know about all those things in that way. He wants us simple concerning evil and wise concerning that which is good. We need to fill our minds, fill our hearts, fill our spirits full of things that are good and virtuous. Going back to our title reading 1 Corinthians 9.25, I want to focus on this statement that was right in the middle, but I discipline my body. And this is real interesting, because if you look at what Paul says, thus I fight, not as one that beats the air, then he says, but I discipline my body. This is why I said we are the enemy, because that's what Paul says. The word discipline there means literally to strike with the fist. He's saying I punch myself. I don't beat the air I beat myself. Now, he's not talking about self-deprecation. He's not talking about self-harm. What is he saying? He's saying, I know who the enemy is. That's what he's saying. I know who I'm fighting. How do you discipline your body? Well, we have a real life way of doing that, don't we? We call it exercise. Notice what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life 
that now is and of that which is to come. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. He's not saying exercise is bad. And people read this before and they say, see, that's why I don't bodily exercise because it doesn't profit. That's not what he's saying. He's just making a point that bodily exercise profits in this life. That's it. Just profits in this life, right? But he says godliness profits in all things in this life and in the life that's to come. So it's better. That's the only point he's making about bodily exercise and spiritual exercise. Is that spiritual exercise is better. But I like the fact he uses exercise because exercise is something everybody can understand. How does exercise work? Well, let's just say that I decide I'm going to lose weight. And so uh, I go buy gym membership. And that's all I do. What's changed? Not much. <laughs> I have a gym membership. Maybe they give me a card and I go, I got a gym membership. But am I going to lose weight? Am I going to get more fit? I mean, what's, what's going to happen? Nothing. Well, let's say, well, I'm, I'm going to quit eating donuts at the donuts shop. So I go down. Since I got a gym membership, I'm going to take my donuts to the gym and eat my donuts at the gym. What's changed? Well, not much. <laughs> well, I'm going to go down and I'm going to watch everybody else exercise because I want to figure out how this works. And so that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to see how everybody else is doing it, but I'm not going to exercise what's changed. Nothing. And the same is true spiritually. Just because we get a membership and we go to the place where our membership card got us and we change nothing, nothing changes. And just because we go to a place where other people are exercising themselves spiritually but we're not exercising spiritually, nothing changes. You as an individual have to exercise yourself toward godliness. And I'll tell you something about exercise that's effective. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. You go out and you work out your muscles, what happens the next day? You're sore. Sometimes that's true of spiritual exercise as well. It's hard. And it takes some energy and it takes some effort. And sometimes you're going to want to quit. You know what that's like, don't you? That's, that's a lot of times why we have some, the, the guy that's spotting you on the bench press is not just there to make sure you don't crush your chest. He's also hollering at you when you're trying to push out that last rep going, you can do this, you can do this, keep going, don't quit. Because that's what happens in life. We start trying to change something in our life. We get down the road a little ways. We start really pushing and life gets hard. And what do we do? You got to keep going. Here's another way that exercise works. You go to the gym for two weeks and go step on the scale. Sometimes that scale is not very encouraging, is it? You know why? Because it's not about two weeks. You've got to stay with it. The results may not come right away. They may not come week one, week two. They may not come month five. But you've got to stick with it. It's about practice. We've talked about practice some this week as it regards to music. And, and Toya hates it when I use her for an example in a sermon. So I'm going to do that. Um, because I know she'll forgive me. But years ago when we were in East Texas, we had a situation come up where we were going to have to go talk to a couple. And I'll just tell you, uh, the lady in this couple, um, she, she just raked her nerves. <laughs> and it was just real easy for her to say something that would get Toy all upset. And so that week but that we knew we were going to have to meet them, she spent an entire week going out and talking to our neighbors there in East Texas. And let me tell you, our neighbors was a retirement community. 
And all they did is sit around and watch the news. So if you go and talk to them, they're going to talk to you about the news. And Toya knew that would trigger her because they would just get on some tyrant about something that was going on in the news. So she would go and she would talk to our neighbors and she'd just sit there and listen and listen and let them rant and rave. And when she got done, she said, you have a nice day. And then she'd go to the next one. And I thought, you're crazy. Well, we got to the next time we had to meet with these people and we sat down and guess what Toya did? She sat there calmly and peaceably because she practiced. She exercised herself towards something she knew was a weakness in her life in order to make it to where she wouldn't fail. And guess what? It worked. And that's because that's what the Bible teaches us. You want to be a godly person? Exercise yourself toward godliness. Put yourself in situations uh, where you can be tested. And you don't really have to do that, do you? Because you're going to be tested every single day. Every single day you're going to be tested. Every single temptation that comes on you is an opportunity to succeed, not just fail. Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God. Why is he talking about weapons? Because he had just told them, we are not fighting a fleshly war. Our weapons are not swords. They're not our hands. They're not our fists. The weapons that we're carrying are fighting against things that are spiritual in nature. He said they're pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. This is a warfare that is happening in the mind. This is not the enemy. This is the enemy. This is what we must fight against. And in order to do that, we've got to make some tough decisions. Job said this, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. It's kind of strange, isn't it? You know what a covenant is? Covenant's like a contract. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. It's like he's saying, my eyes and I have an agreement. Well, what's your agreement? I'm not going to look at a woman. Okay. I'm not going to look at a woman. Why? Because I don't want to think on a woman. What's he saying? I'm not going to have lust in my heart toward a woman that I shouldn't have. You know why? Because I'm not going to look at her. I'm not going to look at her. I've made an agreement with my eyes not to look at things that lead me toward temptation. You've got to do that. You've got to make an agreement with your eyes. You've got to decide there's certain things I'm going to refuse to look at. So if you look that way and you see something, what are you going to do? Are you going to focus in on it or are you going to turn your head and look at something else? Focus on something else. This is what Paul said in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. This word provision has the idea of foresight. And it's almost like planning, if you will. So you go out and you try to uh, deer hunt. And you go out and you scout 
the area and you look around, you try to find out where the best lane is for shooting lane or, or where maybe look around on the ground and find out where the deer are coming in and then you try to figure out where the prevailing winds are. And you, you go through all of this to try to make sure that you win, right? You want to win. That's called provision. Well, this is the opposite. This is a negative provision. You're making provision for your flesh to win. You say, well, how does that work? I'll tell you how that works. If you know somebody that really does trigger you every day to commit sin and you can't use that for practice, you don't think you can succeed, you don't need that person in your life. If you have a drinking problem, you don't need to drive by the liquor store. You need to go the other way. I was just talking with a guy about this a month ago. He said, I'm driving 30 minutes out of the way to get home from work now. 30 minutes. I said, good, you're winning. Spending more on gas, spending more time on the road, but he's winning. You know why? Because the other way drove right past three liquor stores. And he was losing. You don't want to sin, don't sin. But what you can't do is make it easy to sin. You'll never win doing that. And that's what happens. We make it easy for ourselves to commit the sin that we're accustomed to committing. And he says, don't do that. Don't make a provision for lust. Make it hard to sin. Walk. Walk in the Spirit. Now, I told you it doesn't always start with the hands. It starts with the heart. But if it doesn't have the hands involved, it will never happen. Again, that's the same way with exercise. You can make a decision to control oneself, but until you start exercising and getting in there and actually exhibiting some type of self-control, we call it habit. I've got a habit of doing that. Well, you know, our habits that we've developed don't just happen overnight, do they? They develop over a long period of time. Why do we think a new habit is going to develop over a short amount of time? We've got to constantly practice and walk. That's why he says walk. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here's what Paul said. Bring it into subjection. Now whether you know what this is or you've watched it or anything, I want to use this as an example. And I've used fighting several times because that's where Paul starts out. But uh, mixed martial arts has really gotten popular and it's kind of become more popular than boxing now and and there's two ways to win a fight it's either to put him to sleep or to make him tap out and when he taps out what he's saying is I'm giving up I'm surrendering and they just call it submitting that's what this means literally bring it into subjection I'm going to make it tap out I'm going to make it quit you know when Van was little we would talk about things and I would ask him the question who's in charge and I wasn't talking about me I was talking about him you know if there's an anger issue there's a temper issue and there's this outburst well who's in charge is it your temper or is it you because we control us don't we we do we control us but Paul says that's my that's my mindset I don't let my body determine what I'm going to do. If my body cries out for satisfaction, I say, no. No, you're not in control. You're not in control, flesh. I'm in control. The Spirit is in control. I bring it 
into subjection. Listen to what he says when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. These are the, the verses that lead up to the, the, to the fruit of the Spirit. He says, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. He said, not only do I tell my lust no, he said, I killed them. I put them to death. And when something has been put to death, it no longer has energy and it no longer has power. That's what he's saying. It doesn't have power anymore because I don't walk in them. He says, if we're going to live in the Spirit, let us walk in it. Let us walk in it. Therefore, do not, do not let sin reign. There's a big difference, friends, in committing a sin and letting sin have control. And I, neither one is excusable, but there's a big difference in those two things. And you may be thinking right now, well, I, I can't always be perfect, and you're right. I'm not always perfect. None of us can ever always be perfect, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can go to work on it, and we can decide I'm not going to let sin reign. I'm not going to let it have control over me. I'm going to control it. That's exactly what God said to Cain when Cain killed his brother. Sin lies at the door, and it wants you, but you should have control over it. That was the very first time someone had an outburst of wrath, and what did God say? You're in control. You're in control. For this is the will of God, Peter says, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Here's something we have to be really careful about. Being free from sin and the law of sin and death doesn't give us the liberty to be free from God's commands. Just because we've been freed in Christ doesn't give us the freedom to do anything. And sometimes we will use that liberty as an excuse. Because, well, God is forgiving and he's merciful. And so it's not that big a deal. Is it a big deal? Why even have this lesson? Why even talk about the need to control oneself? Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? You know, sometimes we, again, we say, well, it's just too difficult. The battle's too difficult. And I've told this story here before. Maybe some of you haven't heard it. Uh, but I remember hearing this story one time about this man who was doing a financial seminar, and he was telling everyone in the crowd that day, you can be a millionaire. That was his, that was his spiel. You can be a millionaire. And everybody was, was you know, body and hook, line and sinker, except for one young kid that was sitting up in the front row, and the whole time he was looking at him just going like this, shaking his head. And he finally got tired of it. And he said, why are you shaking your head? What is your problem? And he said, you're just, you're lying. I will never be a millionaire. And he said, come here. And he brings him up and he reached down under the table and apparently he'd done this before because he already had the bucket. And he pulls this bucket out on top of the table and he tells the guy, he said, look in that bucket and I want you to see what's in there. And the guy looked over in the bucket and he took his head and he shoved it down in the bucket and it was full of water. 
And so this guy starts fighting. And eventually he knocks the guy off of him. And he comes out and he's mad and he's breathing heavy. And he said, what is wrong with you? And he said, when you want a million dollars as bad as you wanted your head out of that bucket, you'll find a way to get it. When it's life and death, you'll find a way. And I want you to know something. This is life and death. That's what it is. That's what Paul said. It's life and death. Because if it's one sin, it'll turn to two, and then three, and then four. And if you just start getting complacent about your life and about being self-controlled, pretty soon it's not just about committing a sin. Sin is your master, and it leads to death. It's life and death. And if you want to change, you can change. You just got to want to do it. And understand how badly you need to change. When Paul spoke to a nobleman named Felix, I want you to think about what Felix considered. It says after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, now this is talking about Felix, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season. I will call for thee. Which one of these things do you think that Felix considered that caused him to tremble? I would say it was judgment to come, wouldn't you? Which one of these things did he consider, though, that caused him to say, yeah, this isn't a good time? Do you think it was salvation or judgment? No, it was temperance. Because that's why most people don't want to be a Christian, because they understand what... Christ has asked us to do is to be controlled, to change, to repent. It is a core teaching, a core foundation of the gospel of Christ, temperance is. I want to leave you with one last passage this morning. And it's the end of our reading. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I'll tell you why else this is so important. Is because we cannot go and tell people about Jesus if we have not lived a life of self-control. You know why? Because we have disqualified ourselves from preaching that message. And the world knows it. Every time you tell somebody about Jesus Christ and about how he has come to save them from their sins, you know what the first thing they're going to look for in you is? Something to blame you about. So don't give them anything. You live your life with Jesus as Lord in control of your passions and go preach Christ. And the world will listen. They may reject it, but it won't be because of you. We disqualify ourselves. Friends, I have lived my life in many different ways. And I'll tell you, when I am not living right, when I am not living in self-control, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel dirty. I feel dirty. Don't you? And that may not be the reality of things, but I'll tell you, I feel dirty. 
And when I feel dirty, what I don't want to do is go serve God. This will kill any motivation that we have of ever stepping out in service for God. This morning, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If there's someone here today and you need Jesus Christ, you need his cleansing, come. If there's someone here today and maybe you've been living your life without control and you feel dirty, well, come and let Jesus cleanse you. See, Jesus is loving and he's merciful. And God is merciful and God loves to cleanse us. But he loves to cleanse us because that means that we are coming to him. So come to him now as we stand and we sing.